Fáilte, 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 a chard gael. Welcome back to the Rebel Matters podcast. This is episode 51 and the first episode after a few weeks of a break. I had to take a bit of a time out from recording the podcast just to get my full weight behind organising the Gym Jam, which was a fundraising event that we held at our personal training facility in Cork City Centre to raise money for the Palestine Community Gym, which is a project that we are leading and very heavily involved in at this moment in time. The Gym Jam was an outrageous success, more successful than we could have hoped. And one of the biggest successes of the whole project of the Gym Jam for me was the amount of people that gave us their time, effort, creative input and donations and support to the event. People came from all over the country to take part in the Gym Jam. People from all over Cork and small businesses from all over Cork gave us their support to get behind the event as well from donating uh, raffle prizes, uh, drinks, money and equipment for the day. It was unbelievable. There was over 35 people in Ackley on the Friday night, which was the night before the Gym Jam, getting ready, getting the place ready, decorating the place as well. And Stella did an absolutely cracker job. There's so many people to mention that I'm not going to go through them, but everyone who took part in the Gym Jam, whether you were there attending the night or you were uh, helping us or performing or lent us something or donated something, you all know who you are. And Gura Ked We, I thought that a good day at the gym jam that we would have raised 8,000 euros. I thought 10,000 euros would have been an absolutely cracker day at the office and we actually raised 15 grand in the night and all that money is going towards the Palestine Community Gym. So you can check out a bit more about that project on the Palestine Community Gym social media accounts or even the Ackley social media accounts, Ackley underscore Cork on Instagram. But anyway, it's great to be back at the Rebel Matters uh, podcast studio and recording this episode again this is a, a class we episode today actually it's quite related to the palestine community gym project it's a recording of an, an interview that i did a few weeks ago with Re- rebecca steed from the middle east monitor and she was asking me questions about the where Ackley came from and the palestine community gym and how that came about so it's a nice little explainer it wasn't really recorded as to be a podcast but I recorded the Skype conversation that we had and then just went back over it and thought it would be nice because it's quite an informal chat. You'll hear that I am lit to bits talking about the Palestine community gym and about Ackley and where Ackley came from and about the the situation that was going on whenever I was a, but a young lad in West Belfast in school and knocking around there and how that impacted what I ended up doing today with Ackley and with uh, the Palestine Community Gym as well. So that's going to be a nice little listen for you if you hang on. I've been thinking about where we're going to go with the Rebel Matters podcast from here. There's 50 episodes done and dusted already. Uh, it's available on all podcasts, well, all the main podcast platforms, including Spotify and I. And because I wanted to just like take advantage of the little break that we had there to reassess where we want to go with the podcast. And I had a chance to do a bit of work on the Rebel Matters website, which is rebelmatters.ie. All the episodes are there and available there straight from the website now. 
And there's also a little blog, and I've got some blog posts that I've done. I haven't really done any blog posts recently, but there's ones that I've done in the past that are there if you want to read them. And there's also the link to the Patreon account if you want to support this podcast with a small monthly subscription. You can do that from the rebelmatters.ie homepage. So what I've been thinking about doing for the podcast is... um, doing a couple of series so picking one topic and then doing a bit of a series on that topic and having a few episodes uh after in in sequence on the same topic so i've been asking around and i think what i'm going to do well we are going to do it is a series on folklore and mythology and i've been in touch with a bunch of absolute legends who are willing to give me a bit of their time to record a podcast episode on folklore and mythology and I'm going to start that next week. So there's going to be a bit of travelling involved in that there but I think it's going to be a, a class thing to do just to get around to different people in different parts of the country and talk to them about their their folklore stories and hear people uh, telling their stories. And as it happens, we're starting the storytelling night in Ackley as well, which is on Friday the 16th of August at 7 o'clock. So if you want to come down with a story yourself and tell it or come down and listen to other people's stories, then you can come down to that. We'll be in the back room of Ackley. The place will be lit nice and softly with candles and we'll be just telling stories for an hour or two. It's a free event and everybody's welcome. But I think that probably ties in with where we're going with the podcast as well. So I'm on down to that there. As it happens, the day after that uh, storytelling night in Ackley, we're going to have a uh, Lone Moor long table lunch on the 17th of August at 2 o'clock, I think it is. No, hang on a second. It's at half past two on Saturday the 17th of August, which happens to be six years to the day since Ackley started training people. So it'll be a little birthday celebration as well. It'll be outside if the weather's nice. So come on down to that there. And what else was there? It's been a mental few weeks. It took me a really long time to recover after the gym jam because it was just such a big build up to it. And we were really were working around the clock to get the place ready and get everything in place to, to have... Um, to make the day a success everybody came to actually we started at 2 o'clock on a day we had food we had from people the people who normally cook the food for the long, long table for the Lone Moors brought food um, Brian from Green Restaurant had lovely food on the go as well Marcus from Yum Gelato gave us an absolute pile of handmade gelato Alchemy gave us loads of coffee and we're there banging out the coffee and then during the day the bands kicked off the weather held off as well and then we went inside for the night time but it was such a big build-up and such a big release after and then there was the clean-up operation the counting of the money and getting all the equipment back to people it took me quite a long time to recover and we're just getting back to normal business now in actually after that uh well we've been back in business since the monday after the gym jam properly but it definitely took us a bit of time to steady the ship after the gym jam. So that's another reason why there hasn't been a podcast in the last couple of weeks. But we're back on the road now and we're going to be getting the podcast out on Friday. I've decided to change the time that the podcast is going to get released. I was putting it out at 7 o'clock in the morning on Friday, but I'm going to change it to half past four. So it'll still be out on time for any if anyone who's listening to the podcast in the car on their way back from work on a Friday evening uh it'll be a nice way to get the weekend started and it just gives me an extra few hours to get the whole thing ready for you but i do want to say that 
on this on the next few, few on the next run of podcasts because there's going to be a nice bit of traveling involved and uh, a bit more expense involved with producing the episodes I, anybody who is out there who wants to support the podcast and who is lit to hear that we're going to be doing a series on folklore and mythology, then I would give us a little nudge towards the Patreon account to support the podcast to help cover the cost of producing the episodes and the travel and all that kind of crack that goes along with getting the Rebel Matters podcast out on a weekly basis. And of course, if you're not in a position to do that or you don't want to do it, then that's okay as well. But I highly appreciate anybody who does do it, and there are some patrons there already, so Gorakhead Milamwagov for that there. And what else? Let me see. Do, 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 do. That's it. Oh, yeah, I'm going to have a little treat for you at the end of the podcast today. So if you do listen to the end of the interview with Rebecca here, there's going to be the outro music, and then there's going to be a little story at the end. So hang on in there and if you're still listening at the end then stay tuned for a wee bit of a story. Um, maybe we might make this a, a regular feature of the podcast if you are digging it. But without further ado, this is a recording of an interview that I did with Rebecca, Rebecca Steed that was published in the Middle East Monitor. You can find that. I'll put the link to the actual published article in the show notes as well if you want to read the the sort of article version of this interview. But the interview itself is much longer. It's about an hour long. And it'll give you a good bit of background into how the Palestine Gym Palestine Community Gym project came about and a good bit of background on Ackley as well and how we operate and how that came about so I hope you enjoy it and of course if you do want to support the Palestine Community Gym project you can do that on the GoFundMe page it's gofundme.com forward slash Gym. you can also check out the Palestine Community Gym Instagram account or Facebook account and you'll get the details there as well so Buenagui Salt as Nagli Akkardigal just tell me a little bit more about Ackley just to start with just for some context because I feel like well pardon my ignorance but I don't know a great deal about Cork and I presume that a lot of our readers weren't either so if you could just give us a little bit of context about what Cork's like is it a big place you know you seem to have a really great mix of uh, community and local clientele coming in so what it means to the community really to have your gyms up there yeah well I guess if like the background of Ackley really kind of originates in Belfast as opposed to Cork. Not from uh, the business started on Cork six years ago, but I'm from Belfast, from West Belfast, and I think that 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 growing up in West Belfast had a very big impact on what I ended up doing in my, kind of my career and stuff like that. I suppose it does give it a, a bit of better of a context if I go back to Belfast to start with, and then you can like pick and choose whatever you want to put in, into the thing or whatever. But like for me personally, it's, that's probably one of the biggest influences of how I ended up doing what I'm doing now with Ackley in Cork as a career and also that, that a knock-on influence to what I'm, we're doing in Palestine. Um, like the community that 
I grew up in Be- in West Belfast uh, has um, you know, like I kind of suffered a lot of the same um, forms of oppression and discrimination. Uh, that that was a big part of, of our lives. Like growing up, like most of my early most of my earliest memories of being in Belfast are somehow influenced by like the war that was going on around us at the time, and even to the fact that like. Like I didn't start speaking English till I was about five years old, and that was at the time, uh, was like putting a big red cross on your back that you were a Catholic, and like we, our family had to move house because of that because obviously I didn't know the difference between Irish and English, so I was just speaking Irish everywhere, which would have been kind of an indication of you know like of of that that we were Catholic or whatever, um, and there's I think that that coming from that community and coming from a place where we were being discriminated against from a place where the authorities weren't really like they were against us more than they were for us and that kind of bred uh, this like drive for, for the people in the community the people, the, the generation ahead of me and the one ahead of that again to become quite like, kind of self-sufficient in a way like and become come up with ways of providing the infrastructure for a community to survive because it wasn't being provided by the state. Matter of fact, like it was being actively trying to bro- broken down by the state. Like when we were kids, there was no even point in calling the cops if something bad happens in your area because they just wouldn't come out. Our school was for all intents and purposes, the government were trying to close our school down for the f- first five or six years because it was through the medium of the Irish language. And if you go back to the sixties, the late sixties, is when the Irish language movement in Belfast really started to take off and they, the people who who kind of formed the nucleus of that movement had this um, kind of motto, Na Habere Jane, which in English translated, don't say it, do it. And that really was the kind of uh, the battle call for, for, the, for the community that I came from. And when, when you look at the the houses that they built in the late 60s to form a little Gaeltacht area in West Belfast, which led on to the formation of the only Irish language secondary school in um, in Belfast at the time. They started that in, the houses were built in 69, the school started in 72. When Bombay Street was burnt out, which a lot of people put down as the, the kind of landmark thing that started off the modern conflict in the north, it was the the people from the Irish language community who had already built their own houses that went down and rebuilt those houses. The secondary school that I went to was started by a group of activists who s- saw the need for young people to get an education and the importance of doing that through the Irish language. That was started in, in the 90s. There's um, a cultural centre there. Now there's um, a football club that was started by activists all this is all like it wasn't somebody coming in from the outside and saying, here, you should do this, set this up for yourselves or here's a grant for this. They're saying like, we need this stuff, the cultural stuff and the sporting stuff and the the education wasn't set up as a kind of uh, bourgeois like privilege. It was set up as a, a crucial piece of the infrastructure for the survival of a community. And that's the kind of background that, I, that I'm coming from with um, with setting up actually, like actually, like to go to the background of actually, like my my personal background is in sports science and um, biomechanics, which is like the physics of how the human body works. As a career, that's kind of the path that I chose. But if you look at when people come into Ackley in Cork, which is 
like it's a personal training facility and we've been open for six years and sometimes I struggle to kind of define what it is because like people have this this idea in their head of a gym and the, the gym culture especially today people associate this as a kind of a macho culture where it's quite intimidating it's like really um influenced by people taking pictures and being on their phones and social media has even brought that whole culture on to a whole new level where it's become really superficial um health in the western world like has become massively commodified where as as people were just consumers for for products now like for health food supplements for gym memberships for different types of training programs and really it's been boiled down so much and we've been kind of commodified so much as consumers that in a lot of respects the whole purpose of a facility that's meant to help people with their health and a lot of a lot of a lot of instances now is actually doing the opposite because if you think about the typical experience of going into a gym it's you walk in first of all if someone's going to a gym for the first time they're more than likely self-conscious because they wouldn't be going there to, to do they would be going in there to change how they feel about themselves um or how are they even to change their appearance or whatever uh, for loads of reasons but a lot of the time they'll be self-conscious they'll go in the first thing you see when you go into the gym is a mirror the second thing is like it's full of screens, so there's so many so many people in the same same room, yet nobody's communicating with each other. Which, if you look at like the, if you look at the kind of like foundation of like loneliness, that's like when <laughs> you're never more lonely than when you're with in a group of people, but you're completely separate from them. It's more lonely being in that position than you are just being by yourself. Um, yeah. and then there's the whole thing of like the body image like you might see like models on the wall you might not know what to do you're just left to your own devices and because of the fact that gym memberships have been sort of like created as a consumer product what happens is the only thing most of the time that they're worried about is just getting the membership like the the vast majority of gym memberships are sold in the first week of january for like usually like quite a small monthly fee or 50 quid or 100 quid a month whatever the case may be and most of them nobody ever goes to them so it kind of set out to change that mentality with with Ackley and as well as that we wanted to bring in other things um like a different case kind of a different business model um and it also has different inputs like we do personal training where we work quite specifically with our members and we have a really broad range of members like we have like people who are just not being catered for at all. Like we've got people in one training session, the way we work is we bring four people in every hour and we work with them four people. In that, in that group of four, you could have someone who has got like a spinal cord injury who's using the wheelchair. You could have someone who's gone off to compete in an in international competition in a, in triathlon or something like that. You could have someone who just wants to lose weight and you could have someone who's after getting hip replacement or something like that. So we're catering for quite a, a broad range. But for me, like one of the most valuable things is that we're, we're creating an equal opportunity for participation for everyone not in the sense that if you have like say a disability that uh there's a little corner over there for the disabled people and you can go over there and use that a little bit and do you kind of like do a sort of a token bit of exercise we're trying to create a, a way of training that levels the playing field for everyone and that's good for the person with a disability because they're feeling included. It's also good for the person who's able-bodied because it helps them overcome what certain, some perceptions, preconceptions that they might have about people who are in wheelchairs. And um, 
it's a really nice training environment. So we're also trying to bring in other elements of health that aren't, they're not in the standards for like health and fitness kind of model because of the fact that they you can't really pay. They're not like products. We like, we have a book club um, where once in the last Thursday of every month, people come and we just talk about whatever books we're reading. We have a library in the gym where people yeah, can borrow books. Yeah, because I noticed there was um, Chomsky and Papier's Palestine book. And yeah. the opposite. <laughs> so I was right. about the yeah, well, we like, when we made that video, that was a little bit of a setup because we knew it was going to be the Palestine video. So, like, we put in, but um, uh, yeah, <laughs> it's it's a pretty left wing library though in general. But um, the so we have that, and you don't have to be a member of the gym or anything to come to come to those things. We have a long table lunch where once every two or three months we have this like a massive table, like it's like forty or fifty feet long down the middle of the gym. And everyone could just come and bring food and share it. And we actually got that idea from the Basque Country, which is something that's quite still quite popular there. Um, that they have these communal lunches, and the the we have movie nights as well every so often. And the, the idea behind those things is that, like, it just goes back to the whole idea of health being something that's not just completely in, about the individual person. That it it's about how you relate with other people, and your relationship with the community that you're in. It also comes back to the what you believe the purpose of a business to be, whether the purpose is just to make profit or is the purpose is to uh, have a positive influence on the people that are coming as customers, but also on the, like, the wider community. And I guess that's kind of a good way to lead into how we ended up doing the thing with Palestine because for me, like the purpose of a business is to provide something useful for the people who are coming to to use that business regardless of what the business is like whether it's a cafe or a personal training facility or, or whatever like clothes shop like the purpose should be that you're creating a sort of a cycle that is mutually beneficial for everybody involved like we haven't got any producers per se but if we if we did have producers they would be a part of the cycle that would be making sure that they were benefiting from it and that we weren't like taking the piss out of them by buying their product for next to nothing and then selling it for a massive profit. So the the cycle for us is that the staff that work in the gym get uh, the opportunities to build a career that they might not otherwise have. And I think a really good example of that, of that is one of our coaches, Alan, who is a full-time wheelchair user. And f- as far as I know, he's the only professional like strength and conditioning coach that trains able-bodied people like in the whole country. Like It's amazing. When people come in to us, say somebody walks in the door and they want to start training with us and then Alan wheels up to them and says how are you doing my name's Alan I'm going to be your coach today and then that just creates that dynamic where they're like sometimes they're like whoa I wasn't expecting that and he has to overcome like that kind of preconceived notion they have of him and then they go off and they do the job and the other part of it is that we're providing something of real value to the members in terms of teaching them something new that they learn something that they can go off and carry on and do for the rest of their lives and that they see the benefit of it and then the other thing is that we provide like it's we're kind of like going starting small and working our way out to the edge of the circle that we provide something useful for the community that we're based in which is why we do the book club Mm -hmm. and movie nights and the long table lunches and those kind of activities and then like we really are in a privileged position that, that we can expand that reach a little bit further and now we're like we're helping we're hoping to be helping people in Palestine, which it's just, it's just like an expansion of the same concept. It's just that we're after yeah. building our business to such a stage where we like we have the like it. 
it is kind of a privilege to be able to do that. It's like we couldn't have done it three years ago because like we were on the struggle, like trying to build a business. Like, how many members would you say, like, on a just on a rough scale for me to give some context? How many? Uh... Um, we would have we would have about um at any given stage probably between pff, about eighty five members, something like that. There, mm-hmm. um, yeah, mm-hmm. and then we. The thing is, like, with our training, like, it, it in the, in the sense that, like, a commercial gym would, would would have, like, 500 members or something like that, because they would be, just like I say, like, most of them wouldn't be going and stuff like that. There, it's, it's a more personal service that we're offering. But as well as that, I would see that the people who come through our system, who might spend three or four or five or six months with this training, one of the biggest blessings of our business is they stay involved with it and they'll come to the long table lunches and they'll bring their family members and it especially in the last year or two, we really have started to see people like bringing their kids to training and the, and the kids like they're, they hang out in the library while their mum or dad are training and read a book, something like that there. That's like the real beauty of it. Like, so there's the, there's the membership and then there's the, the crew that's around, which is like just as, as just as valuable really. So you visited Palestine twice last year, you said? Yeah. So I was out there in March and I was out in March last year, 2018 and really you know, like it goes back to that thing about um about growing up in West Belfast and we were the thing like it, it's probably the same with any any movement of like kind of national liberation or any movement against the colonialism that if they, they kinda of have these connections these like a bond. So like there always seemed to be a bond with Palestine the Palestine and there always seem to be a bond with the Basque country as well. And um for me it's one thing being told the, the Palestine, there are brothers and sisters. They're going through the same thing, and it's another thing that is going is going over to see it and f- figure it out by ourselves. Because there are a lot, of, there are a lot of similarities. Like there are so many similarities. Like for example, like the 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 checkpoint that closes off Al Shuada Street in Hebron. It's nearly like a carbon copy of the checkpoint that the British Army had on Castle Street in Belfast. When I went there, I was like, "What? I was like, this is exactly the same." Like, and we were walking down Al Shuada Street. And I, like, I knew that the regiment that was in charge of that that set that was like um, occupying that street was the parachute regiment of the Israeli army because they have the exact same uniform as the parachute regiment in the British army. And it just so happens that I was like, I was, I thought I was going mental like whenever this was happening, but just so happens that we were with an ex-soldier at the time, and I was like, is that the parachute regiment? He's like, yeah. He's like, how did you know that? I was like, well, dressed exactly the same as the parachute regiment in the British army, and like the jeeps that they use. And this is not just connected with Belfast, um, but you can see, you've seen the same thing happen in India and stuff and in South Africa. But the, it's a clear strategy and you can see that with the Great March of Return that, that they want to, um, they're targeting children and they're targeting people who are just in bystanders or who aren't combatants, um, and shooting them to try and incite, to bring people out on the street so that they can, uh, attack more people, more innocent people, and that's there was a twelve-year-old girl shot dead by a plastic bullet by the British Army just up the road from where, where we live, Julie Livingstone, and there was another one shot dead, another um, young girl by the British Army around the corner from that, Caroline Kelly. The so they're the same things. And whenever I was over there in March, I, we were sitting in the in the Lagi Centre as it happens on St Patrick's Day. We were having dinner, and uh, they put on like a kind of like a nice reception for us because it was St. Patrick's Day and they were giving us like a little show and stuff and they were given there was there was a guy there who was talking 
Mohammed Alaza, who's a photographer and a, a video journalist, and actually did a podcast episode with him since then. And he was videoing the Israeli army when they were invading the Ada refugee camp, and it an Israeli soldier shot him in the face from six meters with a rubber coated bullet. And like rubber coated bullet is kind of like a misnomer. It's a, a real bullet with a little cover of rubber over the top of it and within his cheek. And as kind of coincidence had it, there was another guy sitting beside me, um, who I knew from Belfast and his grand, his grandmother, um, was a woman called Emma Groves who, and a British soldier shot her from nearly point blank raise in the face with a rubber bullet as they were passing her house on a patrol and, and she lost both of her eyes. That, that, and that was kind of quite close to the start of the journey, the trip, uh, out the last time. And I was like, it's exactly the same. I was like, went up to Muhammad afterwards. I was like, here, look, it's like, you, you guys need to speak to each other. It's like this, Daniel's granny was shot in the face in the exact same way that you were shot in the face. And then on that trip in March, like we, it was intense, it was really intense. Like I, um, we were going around from place to place, meeting different groups and individuals and there were kind of, Really, I think that the role of international internationals going to Palestine, the role is to go out there and listen to what people are saying and kind of look and see what people are saying and come back and share that story because that's the that's the voice that really they haven't got out there because of their just because they're they're under military occupation and they haven't got the same outlets or the same freedom of speech that we would have. And from speaking to people out there, that's that's the, what's what the Palestinians want us want us to do is to just listen and go back and not not go out and try and like, oh why don't you do this or why don't you do that? It's about just being being there and going back again and then sharing the stories and that's what we did. Like when I came back from that trip, like I came, must have came back on a Saturday or Sunday or something. I was like, right, we'll go back to work on Monday, and like I was like it like I was just in shock when I came back. Was you're out there, you were just going from place to place. I ran the Palestine half marathon out there as well, which is like really, really warm. And I was seeing the pictures, it looks hard work. Yeah. <laughs> and who and like the other thing is like because of the water the the because of the restrictions that the Israeli authorities place on the water out there, like you're kinda of like didn't want to be drinking too much water and stuff, but um we got through it and um well, anyway, when I came back, I was like, I'll go back and work on Monday. And then I just, I just couldn't function. I was like, I was like, just kind of in shock. I was just like, because yeah. just, as soon as you get through the time to think about it, you're like. It's all fuck. information to process, right? You see so many things. And- yeah. You're out there, like you're talking to people and you're like, and then you're getting whisked off to the next place to meet the next person. And it's just like all getting stored up in your brain. And then as soon as you sit down to think about it, it just kind of all comes out. So I was like, right, well, um. I guess the thing to do would be to go back again and um, try and well, like do something. I want to do something a little bit more productive on the second time, and also potentially get involved in a project that would be useful to people out there. And if the reason that, like, the thing that that really want made me want to go back out is it it does go back to um, my like kind of childhood days in Belfast and. I remember our secondary school was started in 1996 and it was an all-Irish school. There were seven pupils in it on the first day and the British government were dead set on just getting it shut down and were saying things that like it was child abuse that we were, that people were trying to get an education through the Irish language and we would be down to the Board of Education at 
you know, like on different days protesting. And in a lot of ways, like that whole movement and the, that whole um, project was driven by individuals who believed in the future of uh, our community and who wanted to do something that would be there for a long time to come. But at the same time, it really even and more so now when I think back on it, I see that like we were completely abandoned. Like <laughs> it was like we were people who were born in a country and the country didn't want us or like the, the authorities didn't want us. The government of the time wanted us just to go away. And it was when people came from the outside to our school that it really gave us this sense of like self-belief or it kind of just validated that we, we did have a sense of in, internal value to, mm-hmm. for, you know, with ourselves because like, of course our parents are going to tell us that we're great and that we're doing a good job. Like that's it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> obviously. <laughs> but then when like you get some, you get like some black Panthers coming over from America and they're saying, you yeah. guys are doing such a good job. You guys are like, are, like keep going. We're behind you. And then like, when if you get someone from South Africa coming over and they're behind and they're like, like we're behind you. This is like the same thing that's happening in South Africa. And you get people from the Basque country coming over and they're like, well, we're like, these people can see that we're here. Like and that we're, that we're struggling and that, were that our struggle is justified and <laughs> like that's that's a big part of that's a big part of um kind of get a little bit emotional talking about it like just even now like just thinking back at it but like that's a big reason why we're doing what we're doing now like with palestine it's it it is like we want to be able to share with them what we're after building um here in cork and we also want to give them something like something that will be useful for them for the years to come. And it's, but just as much as any of that, it's, it's like, it's like a, the hand of friendship. Like it's that, that we can see what's going on. Like, and, and we're kind of reaching out a little bit. And the thing with the project is like, even though like we're, we're talking about it now, I was kind of the contact point for the project. Like, it's not to say that it's impossible for me to say that this project is is mine or it, it was my idea so, or anything like that because like I'm just kind of following on of the example that were set by other people for me if you know what I mean and like that's that's like even even the team that we have in Cork are doing great work like we've there there's a team of like people who are actually volunteering their time and their efforts and their skills to get their weight behind this project like it's a hard project to be involved in because like um Palestine is on the other side of the world and they're under military occupation and we're trying to like build a gym in there it's not like and people have said to me like why 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 would you want to build a gym like if they have they not got like bigger problems like food and stuff and like water but it's the only thing it's the thing that that we're best at now at this stage because we spent these years doing it doing it for other people in Cork and it's about kind of sharing that that experience with with our friends over there but also yeah I, I just think it's just a continuation of the work that it's the continuation of the work that people did for me whenever I was a kid it's the continuation of work that people did for our communities and that maybe that aren't even here anymore like like one for example like people are organizing fundraisers for this um this project 
all over Ireland. Like I was up in Belfast a few weeks ago. There's a festival called Fell in the Galley, a uh, Fell in the Cliggy Gorma, which runs in um, it runs in the in the around the White Rock Road in in West Belfast and around Ballymurphy, which is like an area that has like the inquest for the Ballymurphy massacre, um, when the parachute regiment murdered eleven people over the course of a couple of days, is they're currently ongoing at uh, right now, um, so that's a community that has suffered a lot over the last number of decades and one two of my friends are heavily involved in organizing it Fergal and Nell McUnrichtin their brother Terry was shot dead um like he was a community activist and he was um a, a, a just a community worker a youth worker was an athlete and was a, a doorman in a bar in the city center and I think it's 20 years ago this year he was shot dead just because of where he was from and I never, never got to know Terry um, but I know the work that he did I know I can see that what his legacy is now that his brothers are organising this a festival that's like very much so geared at like promoting positive mental health and physical and mental well-being and they organised the fundraiser for this project last week and it's that so that's kind of like that's where the that's where the project comes from like it's just kind of a continuation of of that kind of work and for people that I knew and people that I never got to met because they're not they're not here anymore because of because of what they were doing at the time um, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about the gym itself so where are you at in terms of the project in I in the camp so yeah. like where are you gonna have the gym is it in the larger center or are you finding somewhere new you know, how you also, you mentioned the obstacles of trying to deal with a project which is on the other side of the world and, and one that's under occupation at that. So, you know, where are you going to get your equipment from? How are you going to get in to, to train these people? I'm sure maybe some of these are longer term problems that you might have, but sort of where, what stage are you at right now and how do you think that you're going to tackle some of these issues? Yeah, the, all, you mentioned, you actually mentioned the biggest issues that we're having. You just mentioned all of them. Um, so... <laughs> The, pro- the the facility itself, so the facility itself is going to be based on the model that we're after building in Ackley, in essence, which is um, a model of working like that. There's a coach that's working with people quite specifically that it's a, um, a very friendly and safe environment that it's not a, not an intimidating environment like you might think in a, in a particular gym and that it's inclusive for everyone who lives in the Ada refugee camp which is like over five and a half thousand people and um it should be wholly inclusive like for kids boys girls men women people who might not be able to get around or who are um dealing with a mental uh, sorry if an illness of some kind or um a medical condition so that presents a challenge because that's quite a novel kind of environment to create for a gym yep. uh, for, for for what we're trying to do. Uh, the Ladji Centre, for anyone who doesn't know, like the Ladji Centre is a community centre, a, a community, sort of grassroots community organisation that serves the people in the Ada refugee camp. And they, I mean, they're, they're doing such class work. That's one of the reasons why... I went back to the Ladji Center is that I, it was, I just resonated so much with it in, comp- let's say in relation to the organizations that, that we had when we were kids that I don't know what, what 
we would be doing now like if those organizations of those groups or um clubs and stuff hadn't have helped us when we were kids the my, me and my friends my family as well um the Lodgy center so has got like a library in there already they do music lessons for kids they have a um a dagba um dick dance uh group um they teach the kids traditional palestinian music they have a function room where they bring visitors and they have a playground, which is the only, it was the first playground, I think, in any of the refugee camps is the playground that they opened there. And they, it was just whenever I was out there in August and I hadn't gone out there with the intention of doing this in August. That it wasn't like, I wasn't like, I'm going to go out there and figure out how we want to set up a gym in Palestine. It just, it came completely out of the blue where I was speaking to one of the, um, one of the kind of founders of the Laji Center, Salah. And we were just talking about the, the living conditions in the camp and what it was like to live there and the different problems that that comes like it's living are very cramped um like the thing is like less than one square kilometer the whole camp like um the the surface area of the camp hasn't changed since the camp was formed like 1950 or something like that or just after the 1948 um and and uh so they're, they'd had to build up the way, you know, they're building houses on top of each other, but the streets are real narrow. And the, well, we were talking about this anyway, and we were saying that like there are major problems with, um, high blood pressure and real, real high levels of diabetes as well. And they have got a community health worker, um, scheme on the go there in recent years, which has allowed people, young people in the camp to, um, test for blood pressure, um, help people uh stay on top of their diabetes and there's also like the the problems that come the mental health problems that come with the situations that they're living in like and it's it's kind of funny because in the west here i, I don't know if this is accurate or but it's just maybe like a kind of a bit of a sense that i got but i know in, in the west and in ireland anyway we've kind of separated our mental health and our, our, our physical health as if they're two separate things and there's been a few times over there whenever I was kind of asking like, what, so are there mental health issues here? And they're like, what do you, like, what do you mean like mental health? And they're like, <laughs> so it, I don't know, culturally have the two things, are the two things as separate out there were, but I mean, there are, there are problems that if, if you're living in the West Bank, you, you're going through traumatic, uh, traumatic situation every day of your life, basically. I just kind of said it in passing. Did you ever think about opening a little gym or something like a little training facility where people can come in, like an adult playground kind of, the way you have the playground for kids? And he at the time didn't know that I was involved in setting up Ackley or anything like that. I was just there as a volunteer and as an observer to help with the kind of summer, the work summer camp that they had um, out there. And I was like, well, he said we wouldn't know how, how we would do it. Um, well, we just wouldn't have the the funding for it or the the Lazy Center is they they want to maintain their independence as an organization so that affects where where they take funding from um in, in some regards I think and even anyway like the money that's going in there to the West Bank in general and Palestine is limited they didn't have the, they wouldn't have had the funds to do it didn't have the knowledge how to set it up wouldn't have had the expertise to run it 
And I was like, in my head, I was like, like a light bulb thing, like pop up on top of my head. I was like, here, I was like, <laughs> I was like, funny that you, that's kind of what I do back at home and stuff. And, um, we started talking about it. There was, there's a room at the bottom, on the bottom floor of the Laji Center, which is basically like a storeroom. And it's just like unused and just kind of dusty and stuff lying in it. And I was like, well, that would be a perfect place if he's wanted to do it. And then, Salah was quite open to the idea and when I got back then I just wrote up a bit of a proposal and um, made up a bit of a floor plan put a kind of a budget together a loose budget and sent it to him and they, they, they were very happy to receive it and it kind of came it kind of just kind of grew from there really like so we want to raise 30,000 euros to be able to fund the project all together and uh, we're doing that through various fundraising events and through a GoFundMe page and um, but I think the some of the crucial things about this project is that it's not like a we're not like an international group parachuting in to tell people over there what to do. It has to be a project that it belongs to them, and we're just kind of like helping helping them. Um, so the plan is to invite four to six young people from the camp to come over to Cork to Ackley so that we can train them in the training system that we're after developing and make it as specific as possible for them for for their situation out there i mean it's going to provide a nice sort of a learning pathway for young people for whichever young people want to get involved in it to learn and uh, more about how to train people how to be a coach and train learn more about the human the human body it really just comes down to like people who are interested in in being a part of the project for the benefit of their community and we're we're actually not really looking for anyone who's got any kind of experience. We're like nearly better off starting from scratch. Someone is like, this is how I do it, and teach them the way that we work with people. Um, then they'll spend some time over here with us, and then in the meantime, we'll have sourced the equipment, which is another kind of problem by itself. Like I don't know how much, you know, like it's just very hard. It seems very hard to import stuff into Palestine, like. Uh, next to impossible like there's the playgrounds for Palestine organization got um, a massive amount of equipment seized last year and f as as I understand it what happens is that the Israeli authorities seize equipment that's coming in it seems to be that they'll seize anything that seems to be of benefit to the Palestinian people and then keep it to do security checks on it and if that's, I think that there's about fifty thousand euros worth of, or fifty thousand dollars worth of playground equipment sitting in a storage place somewhere, and they're charging them for the storage, and it's like, I think that another thing that comes into my head whenever people ask, you know, why would you be setting up a gym out there? Another motivation kind of behind, um, this project, and I don't know, like. <laughs> It's about being able to get around the restrictions that people are after having placed on them unjustly. And that's a part of the project as well, is to be able to find a gap in the walls that the Palestinians are after having built up around them, like physically and like uh, physically and you know the other way, like where it's just like they're trying to block everything that's yeah. of benefit to them. They're trying to squeeze them. They're trying to squeeze them until life just isn't worth it anymore. That's like basically what they want to do. Like, and then this type of project, then I think is a way to, to like 
try not let that happen. And I mean, that might be like, that might be quite a like grand notions about our project. Like, and it's like, this project's not going to like liberate Palestine, but it's just a small thing that I think that. <laughs> I can say, I mean, that's something that it's something tangible that you can work towards, you know, grand notions of liberating Palestine and not going tomorrow. And I think working with that objective from, from my point of view personally is, not going to get you very far. You know, you can spend a lot of time running around doing not a great deal. Whereas, as you say, this is a skill that you have and something that you can potentially pass on to to local people. Um, yeah, so I, I fully respect that. I mean, <laughs> running around thinking that you're going to liberate a whole country of <laughs> not so practical, you know? Yeah, it's funny. Like, there's, I, I did another podcast uh, last year with a guy who is uh, just a an all-out revolutionary, a guy called Father Des Wilson. As it happens, he baptized me and my brother in his house. He got kicked out of the Catholic Church uh, for kind of st- standing up for the community whenever they were under assault from the British Army and ended up setting up this little uh, a house, which he still still lives still lives there. Like he's 94, 95 years old now. And, um, you know, in the 70s and all, like he set up this like adult education center that was for a place where people could come and get new skills. And he had... He baptized us in the house. He was like doing stuff in the house, like kind of like, and like that. And it was a center for women who had suffered from domestic violence. And his like philosophy was, if if it needs to be done, like you just do it. You just get a set up and do it and make the thing happen. And that's that's kind of what I guess that's kind of what we're doing. So, um. The next phase of the project is to go out there and you know go out there and inst- install the gym and the I think it, that's like I mean that's going to be the most if when we get to to that stage like that's kind of like do you ever see when you move into a new house and you're like painting the walls and you're like hanging up your own decorations or oh, that's that's that stage where it's going to be like kind of all like rosy and stuff where we're painting each other's faces yeah. and like yeah throwing stuff out <laughs> <laughs> so that's going to be the kind of the fun phase the 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 real kind of like test of the project is going to be um what happens whenever the gym is set up we go home the coaches are in place and then what's going to happen and what we what we need to put in place there is uh kind of like a like a structure like a, a timetable that's going to facilitate the goals of of the of the facility which is going to be to create a, a, an inclusive and a, an, um, an inclusive and a friendly and a useful environment for people to come in to come into and that that's like you're dealing with all the same problems that that we deal with in terms of physical activity except like in a more exaggerated form like for example teenage girls uh, uh, like nearly across the world are the at, at most risk of being less active and you can see that out there they have a five-side court and it's mostly young men who are using it so which is great but we also need to look at the the other kind of sections of the population there and f- make a plan that's going to facilitate their ongoing use of it and de- them to get the benefit the timetable is going to be a combination of things that are like sh- sh- that are like structured things that are there specific for a specific demog- demographic. For example, we'll say okay, the ten o'clock to twelve o'clock on a Saturday is for the boys' soccer team. Uh, like two o'clock to four o'clock is for um, the the group that are attached with the the community health workers that uh, project that are dealing with high blood pressure. 
the there might be a, a walking session, a, a walk uh, like we'll meet at the gym and go for a walk or whatever with a group of women or a group of friends. And then there's going to be times where it's open and people can come together. Uh, it's actually interesting that conversation about those segregated kind of gyms is is, is kind of an interesting thing because, um, like say for us and actually like we're integrated to the extreme where like we have a filter that we run the things that we want to provide the service that we want to provide through and we say well is this possible for everyone who shows up to participate in this and if the answer is no then we need to go back to the drawing board and say how can we fix it so that it's across and like that everyone can take part and and i think that a lot of the time while like say for example women's only gyms while they provide a good environment for women to go to it doesn't do anything really for the problem in the first place which was that the fitness industry has set itself up where it makes one gender feel completely unwelcome in the facility so they have to go off and set up their own facility for me the, the problem is go back a couple mm-hmm. of steps and make sure that everybody feels welcome and that it's an open environment like you know so uh it's what is going to be mixed but at the same time there there are cultural things to consider there as well which um will be like in consultation with the people over there with like it's because it's um it's a different culture, like, and they have their own, their own kind of like, uh, you know, like, like ways of communicating with each other and ways that how they interact with each other and stuff, and that needs to be kind of like yeah. considered as well. Amazing. So you mentioned that the next stage is going in painting the gym, sort of, hopefully, you know, setting it all up. When do you hope that that is, you know, you will get to that stage? I know it's difficult to put an exact time on, but you know, in an ideal situation, if yeah. I mean, the the big thing is to get the equipment into the gym. That's the that's the, like the that's the mountain we need to overcome, um, and that has got some you know some pretty serious considerations there to for us to to figure out like uh, important stuff is very equipment that, uh, is very difficult as we were saying before, so we're looking at sourcing some of the gear over there as much as we can, um, I mean that, but when that happens, we want to go over there as soon as possible, like. It, it, the project is kind of like it's kind of like a domino it's set up like dominoes once the once we have the equipment sorted we can get the young people over here we can train them for a month then by the time we go back over to Palestine with them the equipment all going well and like in the perfect world we'll be there we'll the group of us like over together we'll work hard to get the gym set up uh, so you're looking at get the equipment sorted in, in the next month or so get the young people over here um, in and around about the same time after that then go over spend three weeks over there installing the gym for the first week hopefully you know we want to get a few a few test runs at that kind of weekly schedule thing that we were talking about because I'm yeah. pretty sure that we'll probably mess it up on the first week and then we're like okay the second week let's do it <laughs> yeah exactly there's going to be trial and error with it and then after you know after that like we we want to like help them as much as possible to make this like a project that's going to Go, you know, go on. Um, in the ideal world, refugee camp, everyone would would be allowed to go back to their original villages, and the refugee camp would be shut down. Um, and hopefully that that happens. Um, but I would like that for this this project to be something that they that the people there will benefit from until that happens. 
A Cards of Gale, that's episode 51 of the Rebel Matters podcast, nearly in the bag. We're back on the road. Thanks a million for listening to that interview. I hope it was an enjoyable interview to listen to and give you a bit more of an insight into the work that we're doing with Ackley and also with the Palestine community, Jim. If you want to support the podcast, you can go to rebelmatters.ie and you can click on the Patreon link there and you can set up a small monthly subscription. If you want to, of course, if you don't want to or you're not in a position to do that, then that's fine. Just keep on listening. As I mentioned at the start of the podcast, there I'm going to do a little a little storytelling treat for you. At the end, I've got a book here and I'm going to read the first chapter out of it. So if you want to hear that, then just stay on till the end of the outro music and uh, I'll read you a chapter of a book. So there we go. Oh, also on the topic of reading chapters of books, we've got the book club in Ackley, which is based in Cork City Centre on the last Thursday of every month. If you want to come to that, it's free and it's at seven o'clock on the last Thursday of every month. And like reading, it's class. So, Shane, I'll see you next week. I'll speak to you next week, rather. And we'll be getting started on the folklore and mythology series of the Rebel Matters podcast. So I'm pumped to do that. Actually, haven't recorded any interviews for that series yet. And what I need to start doing with the podcast here is having a few episodes uh, kind of lined up to come out so that there's not a big massive pressure every week to get an episode out. So between now and next week, I'm going to go and find a few people to talk about folklore and mythology and record some episodes with them and line them up for you over the coming weeks. And I'm really excited to do that. Anyway, Shanae, enjoy your weekend, enjoy your week, enjoy the rest of your day, be nice to each other and uh, I'll speak to you later on. Slangafot. So I'm after getting a lend of this book called Boy Tales of Childhood, which is a collection of story stories from Roald Dahl's childhood written by Roald Dahl himself. Of course, we all know Roald Dahl as one of the most famous kids books authors in the world. But there's a little introduction to him on the first page of this book and... Might as well read that out so we're all starting off on the same page, so to speak. Roald Dahl was born in 1916 in Wales of Norwegian parents. He was educated in England before starting work for the Shell Oil Company in Africa. He began writing after a monumental bash on the head sustained as an RAF fighter pilot during the Second World War. Roald Dahl is one of the most successful and well-known of all children's writers. His books, which are read by children the world over, include James and the Giant's Peach, James and the Giant Peach, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, The Magic Finger, Charlie and the Great Glass Elevator, Fantastic Mr. Fox, Matilda, The Twits, The BFG and The Witches, winner of the 1983 Whitbread Award. Roald Dahl died in 1990 at the age of 74. This book that I'm holding here, it was first published in 1984, but the edition that I have was published in 1981. I haven't really picked this book for any particular reason, except that 
I got a lend of it and a few people have seen it sitting around the house and said that it's a class book. And I just thought it would be better to read a book, pieces of a book that I haven't read. And uh, we can kind of read it together. Is it weird? Is it weird that we're that we're reading books and I'm going to read a piece of story, a piece of a book to you? I don't know. If it's weird, let me know. But the first chapter is called Papa and Mama of this book. So give it a crack. And I think I was just thinking like I could put a little piece of this book at the end of the next few podcast episodes to see just to see if anybody wants to hang on for a little bit of overtime with the Rebel Matters podcast and sit back and just listen to a wee bit of a story. And I flipping love reading. So I do. So just thought, why not? We'll give it a try. So the first chapter, Papa and Mama. My father, Harold Dahl, was a Norwegian who came from a small town near Oslo called Sarsborg. His own father, my grandfather, was a fairly prosperous merchant who owned a store in Sarsborg and traded in just about everything from cheese to chicken wire. I'm reading these words in 1984, but this grandfather of mine was born, believe it or not, in 1820, shortly after Wellington had defeated Napoleon at Waterloo. If my grandfather had been alive today, he would have been 164 years old. My father would have been 121. Both my father and grandfather were late starters, so far as children were concerned. When my father was 14, which is still more than 100 years ago, he was up on the roof of the family house replacing some loose tiles when he slipped and fell. He broke his left arm below the elbow. Somebody ran to fetch the doctor, and half an hour later, this gentleman made a majestic and drunken arrival in his horse-drawn buggy. He was so drunk that he mistook the fractured elbow for a dislocated shoulder. We'll soon put this back into place, he cried out, and two men were called off the street to help with the pulling. They were instructed to hold my father by the waist while the doctor grabbed him by the wrist of the broken arm and shouted, Pull, men, pull! Pull as hard as you can! The pain must have been excruciating. The victim screamed and his mother, who was watching the performance in horror, shouted, Stop! But by then the pullers had done so much damage that a splinter of bone was sticking out through the skin of the forearm. This was in 1877 and orthopaedic surgery was not what it is today. So they simply amputated the arm at the elbow and for the rest of his life my father had to manage with one arm. Fortunately it was the left arm that he lost and gradually over the years he taught himself to do more or less anything he wanted with just the four fingers and thumb of his right hand. He could tie a shoelace as quickly as you or me and for cutting up the food on his plate he sharpened the bottom edge of the fork so that it served as both a knife and a fork all in one. He kept it. He kept his ingenious instrument in a slim leather case and carried it in his pocket wherever he went. The loss of an arm, he used to say, caused him only one serious inconvenience. He found it impossible to cut the top of a boiled egg. My father was a year or so older than his brother Oscar, but they were exceptionally close, and soon after, soon after they left school, they went for a long walk together to plan their future. They decided that a, that a small town like Salzburg in a small country like Norway was no place in which to make a fortune. So what they must do, they agreed, was to go to one of the big countries, either to England or France, where opportunities to make good would be boundless. Their own father, an amiable giant, nearly seven foot tall, lacked the drive and ambition of his sons and he refused to support this tomfool idea. When he forbade, forbade them to go, they ran away from home and somehow or other, the two of them managed to work their way to France on a cargo ship. From Calais, they went to Paris, and in Paris they agreed to separate because each of them wished to be independent of the other. Uncle Oscar, for some reason, headed west for La Rochelle on the Atlantic coast while my father remained in Paris for the time being. 
The story of how these two brothers each started a totally separate business in different countries and how each of them made a fortune is interesting, but there is no time to tell here, tell it here except in the briefest manner. Take my uncle Oscar first. La Rochelle was then and still is a fishing port. By the time he was 40, he had become the wealthiest man in town. He owned a fleet of trawlers called Pêcheur d'Atlantique and a large canning factory to can the sardines his trawlers brought in. He acquired a wife from a good family and a magnificent townhouse, as well as a large chateau in the country. He became a collector of Louis XV furniture, good pictures and rare books. And all these beautiful things together with the two properties are still in the family. I have not seen the chateau in the country, but I was in La Rochelle, in their La Rochelle house a couple of years ago, and it really is something. The furniture alone should be in a museum. While Uncle Oscar was bustling around La Rochelle, his one-armed brother, Harold, my own father, was not sitting on his rump doing nothing. He had met in Paris another young Norwegian called Ad- Adnison, and the two of them now decided to form a partnership and become shipbrokers. A shipbroker is a person who supplies a ship with everything it needs when it comes into port. Fuel and food, ropes and paint, soap and towels, hammers and nails, and thousands of other tiddly little items. A shipbroker is kind of an enormous shopkeeper for ships, and by far the most important item he supplies to them is the fuel on which the ship's engine run. In those days, fuel meant only one thing. It meant coal. There was no oil-burning motor ships on the high seas at that time. All ships were steamships, and these old steamers would take on hundreds and often thousands of tons of coal in one go. To the shipbrokers, coal was black gold. My father and his newfound friend, Mr. Adnison, understood all this very well. It made sense, they told each other, to set up their shipping business in one of the great coaling ports of Europe. Which was it to be? The answer was simple. The greatest coaling port in the world at this time was Cardiff in South Wales. So off to Cardiff they went, these two ambitious young men, carrying with them little or no luggage. But my father had something more delightful than luggage. He had a wife, a young French girl called Marie, whom he had recently married in Paris. In Cardiff, the shipbroking firm of Addison and Dahl was set up and a single room in Butte Street was rented as an office. From then on, we have what sounds like one of those exaggerated furry stories of success, but in reality, it was the result of tremendous hard and brainy work by both those friends. Very soon, Adnison and Dahl had more business than the partners could handle alone. Larger office space was acquired and more staff were engaged. The real money then began rolling in. Within a few years, my father was able to buy a fine house in the village of Landluff, Landuff, just outside Cardiff, and there his wife Marie bore him two children, a girl and a boy. But tragically, she died after giving birth to the second child. When, when, the, when the shock and sorrow of her death had begun to subside a little, my father suddenly realised that his two small children ought at the very least to have a stepmother to care for them. What is more, he felt terribly lonely. It was quite obvious that he must try to find himself another wife. But this was easier said than done for a Norwegian living in South Wales who didn't know who didn't know very many people. So he decided to take a holiday and travel back to his own country. Norway <laughs> sorry. Uh he decided to take a holiday and travel back to his own country, Norway. And who knows, he might, if he was lucky, find himself a lovely new bride in his own country. Over in Norway, during the summer of nineteen eleven, while taking a trip in a small coastal steamer in Ulsfjord, he met a young lady called Sophie. Magdalene Helsberg. Being a fellow who knew a good thing when he saw one, he proposed to her within a week and married her soon after that. Harald Dahl took his Norwegian wife on a honeymoon in Paris. 
and after that back to the house in Landoff. The two of them were deeply in love and blissfully happy, and during the next six years she bore him four children, a girl, another girl, a boy, me, and a third girl. There were now six children in the family, two by my father's first wife and four by his second. A larger and grander house was needed and the money was there to buy it. So in 1918, when I was two, we all moved into an imposing country mansion beside the village of Redder, about eight miles west of Cardiff. I remember it as a mighty house with turrets on its roof and with majestic lawns and terraces all around it. There were many acres of farm and woodland and a number of cottages for the staff. Very soon, the meadows were full of milking cows and the sites were full of pigs. The styes were full of pigs and the chicken runs were full of chickens. There were several massive shire horses for pulling the ploughs and the hay wagons. And there was a ploughman and a cowman and a couple of gardeners and all manner of servants in the house itself. Like his brother, Oscar, in La Rochelle, Harold Dahl had made it in no uncertain manner. But what interests me most of all about these two brothers, Harold and Oscar, is this. Although they came from a simple, unsophisticated, small-town family, both of them, quite independently of one another, developed a powerful interest in beautiful things. As soon as they could afford it, they began to fill their houses with lovely paintings and fine furniture. In addition to that, my father became an expert gardener and, above all, a collector of alpine plants. My mother used to tell me how the two of them would go on expeditions up into the mountains of Norway and how he would frighten her to death by climbing one-handed up steep cliff faces to reach small alpine plants growing high up on some rocky ledge. He was also an accomplished woodcarver and most of the mirror frames in the house were his own work. So indeed, so indeed was the entire mantelpiece around the fireplace in the living room. A splendid design of fruit and foliage and intertwining branches carved in oak. He was a tremendous diary writer. I still have one of his many notebooks from the Great War of 1914 to 1918. Every single day during those five, year, five war years, he would write several pages of comment and observation about the events of the time. He wrote with a pen, and although Norwegian was his mother tongue, he always wrote his diaries in perfect English. He, li- he harboured a curious theory about how to develop a sense of beauty in the minds of his children. Every time my mother became pregnant, he would wait until the last three months of her pregnancy and then he would announce to her that the glorious walks must begin. These glorious walks consisted of him taking her to places of great beauty in the countryside and walking with her for about an hour each day so that he could, she could absorb the splendour of the, of the surroundings. His theory was that if the eye of the pregnant woman was constantly observing the beauty of nature, this beauty would somehow become transmitted to the mind of the unborn baby within her womb and that baby would grow up to be a lover of beautiful things. This was the treatment that all of his children received before they were born.